I don't know about you, but like Garen said, I'm just so grateful and thankful that my God's not finished with me. And I know that better days are still ahead because of that. If you're visiting with us today, we're in uh, the third week of an awesome series called From Death to Life. Um, two weeks ago as we began, we began to unpack uh, Ephesians chapter 2, just verses 1 through 10, and we'll finish that section today. But the first thing we looked at was simply this, you can't save you, but God can. And, and that, that's the cool thing. That was the big takeaway from that first week is simply that, you can't save you. But God can. And those first seven verses are just amazing. I'd encourage you to go back and read through that uh, and just kind of take in everything that Paul uh, has to say there. Last week, we looked at that area of baptism and what it means to be baptized into Christ. Uh, we saw that the word means to immerse, to dip, to plunge, or as uh, I think it was the comedian Grady Nutt used to say, put them under until they bubble. Um, but that's kind of what baptism is. It's immersion. And one of the, the takeaways for me from that was simply this. Why do we need to be, why, why should we be baptized? Because the one we say we follow told us to, and that ought to be good enough, right? I mean, the one we say we follow told us to do it. That ought to be good enough if we're going to follow and be obedient to our Lord. This week, we want to begin to look at verses 8 through 10. And this is section that's been one of my favorite sections in the book of Ephesians, especially in chapter 2. Uh, even though I've struggled with it in the past, and I'll talk about that a little bit. But if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to Ephesians chapter 2. And just kind of hold verses 8 through 10. And as we begin today, as we begin to look at this section, there's a question that I want us to deal with this morning. And it's simply this. Why do we do the things we do. Seriously, I mean, why do we do the things we do? I mean, what motivates us? What motivates you to come to church, to teach, to sing, to volunteer? What motivates you to just to even give to the kingdom, his kingdom work? I mean, what motivates you? What's that motivating factor, that kind of bottom line that really pushes you ahead and has you do what you do? What is that? Now, let me tell you, these are all great questions, and they're all questions that deserve an honest answer. And the problem with us, or with a lot of us, is just the fact we haven't wanted to answer them honestly, I think. So that's why this morning, I hope and I pray that you will be open to giving an honest answer to the question of motives. To that question, why do I do what I do? Let's pray and we'll dive in. Father, I thank you for all you do. I thank you for our time today. God, I thank you for being in our midst. What an amazing time of worship where we are just brought before you, God. And we know the main purpose of why we worship and why we sing is simply because we want you to be glorified. It's nothing about us, but it is all about you. So I just thank you for being here today. May your spirit move and work in people's lives. May we be open and receptive to what you have. It's in your name we pray. Amen. 
motives. Why do you do what you do? I ran across a letter that was written by a father who wanted to, <laughs> this is great, he, he wanted to apologize to a certain young man for not allowing him to marry his daughter. He had called off the wedding. But now he's writing back to apologize to that young man. This is what the letter said. Dear Frank, I have been unable to sleep since I broke off your engagement to my daughter. Will you please forgive and forget? I was, I was much too sensitive about your mohawk and tattoos and pierced nose. I now realize motorcycles aren't really that dangerous, and, and I really should not have reacted the way that way to the fact that you have never held down a job. I am also sure that some other very nice people also live under the bridge in the park. Sure, my daughter is only 20 and wants to marry you instead of staying at Stanford, but I guess you can't learn everything about life from books. I sometimes forget how backward I can be. I was wrong and have now come to my senses. You may have my full blessing to marry my daughter. Sincerely, your future father-in-law. P.S. Congratulations on winning the $300 million Powerball. <laughs> Motives. Motives are a powerful thing in our lives, aren't they? Chuck Colson wrote, Societies are tragically vulnerable when the men and women who compose them lack character. A nation or a culture cannot stand unless it is populated by people who will act on motives that are superior to their own immediate interests. Wow. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, humans are very seldom either totally sincere or totally hypocritical. Their moods change, their motives are mixed, and they are often themselves quite mistaken as to what their motives really are. Wow. So let me ask you. When it comes to your relationship with Jesus Christ, what motivates you to do the things you do? I mean, what motivates you? I mean, why do you serve? Why do you come to church? Why do you teach? Why do you sing? Why do you play? Why do you volunteer? I mean, why do you do the things you do? Because the motive behind it says a lot about who you are and especially the relationship that you have with your God. So to help us to answer that question, let's look at verses 8 through 10. And we're going to start with verses 8 through 9 in Ephesians in chapter 2. Paul writes these words, starting in verse 8. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. You see, as Paul did in, back in verse 5, he reminds us that we are saved by the grace of God. And grace means that our salvation is completely separate from any doing on, or any work or any good thing on our part. Grace means that God does it all for his sake, for Jesus' sake. It is a gift that is given. It's not a reward that is earned. And here's the cool part. Every other religion, every other cult, every other spiritual belief teaches that salvation depends on the good things that we do. These are commonly called works. Christianity alone stands on the fact that we can do nothing to earn our salvation. 
I mean, if he gave us what we deserve, we would all end up separated from God for an eternity, wouldn't we? If we got what we deserved. After all, as we found out two weeks ago, as we began this series, series and we looked at just those first three verses of this chapter, there is nothing good that lives in us. I mean, Paul said we were dead in our sins. And no amount of good on our part is going to change that. The only reason that God has declared us not guilty is because he has set us free from the penalty of sin by his amazing grace and his amazing mercy. And we have been brought back to life through Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. In which that's what verses 4 through 7 talk about. But God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us, has made us alive. By grace you have been saved. It's an amazing, amazing section of Scripture. You see, we will never be good enough to satisfy the anger and the wrath of God, but Jesus was. Now, if we stop in verses 8 and 9, it's pretty clear that we can do nothing to earn salvation. I mean, doing good things won't get us anywhere, right? But then we come to verse 10. And now, doing good things is a part of who we are in Jesus. And sometimes that can be kind of confusing. I mean, let's begin to, to look at verse 10 for a moment. Because this is how he starts out, and I love this. For we are God's masterpiece. We are God's masterpiece. I'm, Garen, I love that you guys sang that song right before this message. Canvas and the clay, or canvas and whatever it is. That's what I thought. Because I love that. I love that picture because it's, it's the exact picture that we're going to see right here. For we, he says, are God's masterpiece. Other translations use the word workmanship. We are God's workmanship. But they both carry the same idea. That which is made or a manufactured product. In other words, we are his creative piece of originality. We have become God's showpieces. We have become God's poem. Now, I want you to let that sink in for a moment. That you are God's masterpiece. And I want to tell you what hit me this week as I was re-going through this. This is what hit me. The next time... The world or the enemy comes to you and says that you have no worth. You just look him right in the eye and say, I'm my father's masterpiece. I'm his masterpiece. The next time the world and the enemy says you have no value, you just say, look, I'm my father's creative piece of originality. I'm his workmanship. I'm his canvas and he is creating in me something beautiful. The next time you don't think you can do anything for the kingdom of God, you just remember that God has written you as his poem. And he is sharing you with the world. You are God's masterpiece. His workmanship. His creative piece of originality. His poem. That is who you are in Jesus. And never forget it. But he goes on in verse 10 and says this. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus. And then look at this part. 
so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Now, I'll be honest with you. For the longest time, I had trouble understanding what Paul was trying to say. Because on the one hand, in verses 8 through 9, he says that we are saved by grace. And that's not by our works so that pride doesn't get in the way. But then in verse 10, he says that we've been created in Christ Jesus to do good things, to do good works. And so I struggled for a while of how that all fit together. Here's the beginning point, I think, to understanding this, and it's this. On your own, you can't do any good works that will lead you to and give you salvation. You can't do it. Only God can do that through his amazing grace, mercy, and love. That's why we are saved by the grace and not by works. But once we've been saved by grace, God begins the process of recreating us and reshaping us and rewriting our lives so that we can now do the good things that he has called us to do. Those good works that he has created for us from the beginning. The question then that we have to honestly answer is this. Then why do we do those good things? Why do we do those? What's our motive for doing those? What motivates you to be here this morning? What motivates you to teach, to sing, to play, to whatever? What motivates you to do that? You see, if we don't get some kind of a handle on this, it will affect how we respond to his grace and mercy and love. And so the rest of this morning, here's what I want to do. I just want to try to illustrate this for you. I talked about this two years ago, almost two years ago this this month. But most of you weren't here two years ago, so I hope this will help you because it's helped me in understanding this aspect and what our response should be. When I was a kid growing up, I was probably about seven years old, and I really wanted a new bicycle. It was going to look like this. Yeah, that's right, man. That bad boy right there, a swin. Five speed. Now, banana seat, big handlebars, man, that's what I wanted. I mean, all the kids in my neighborhood seemed to have a new bicycle but me. Now, I had an older sister. She's two years older than me. Guess whose bike I got to ride? Yeah, I rode her bike that she handed down to me. Now, let me tell you, as a seven-year-old kid riding a girl's bike to play baseball in Little League, didn't go over real good with the guys, right? I, made, I was made fun of all the time. So I decided I was going to put a three-phase plan of operation into helping me get a new bicycle, that bicycle. Didn't have to be new. It could be used. I didn't care. I just didn't want to ride that girl's bike to baseball. Phase one. Phase one, remember, I'm seven years old. Phase one was clean my room. And I hadn't cleaned my room in a few years. You know, so, I mean, so I went home, and, and I went in, and I cleaned my room, man. I made the bed. The sheets ran uphill. It didn't matter. I just made the bed. I folded the underwear, clean or dirty. didn't matter. I just folded it and put it in the drawer, stuck all the toys, you know, in, into the closet. 
And then I sat on my bed and I waited for my mom to come in because my, my bedroom was close to the kitchen. So I knew she was going to hear what I was doing because I made sure it was loud enough that she could hear. And sure enough, mom comes in and she opens the door and she looks around and she smiles. She hadn't seen the floor in two years. And she says, it all looks so good. And I say, Mom, I'm seven years old. Can I have a Mustang? I'm seven years old. I can't even drive. I mean, they're not going to buy me a car. Even when I'm 16, they're not going to buy me a car. But you start high and you work your way down. I mean, that's what you do as a kid. You start big and you work your way down. That was phase one. Phase two was the next day. Phase two was vacuum the living room. Vacuum the living room. Now, when, when, when I first, when we first started out, um, the first, one of the first vacuums that we had as a family was a Hoover, a big Hoover that I think was made from leftover tank parts. I don't know, from some war. Because when you turn the vacuum cleaner on, literally buildings shook and air raid sirens went off and everybody's going, are we being invaded? No, Joneses are vacuuming again. So I wait for my mom to go to the store and she goes to the store and when she leaves, I get the vacuum out and I begin to vacuum the living room. And I look around because I don't know what I just vacuumed up until I look and the gerbil cage is empty. And I just sucked up the gerbil. The gerbil. But that was okay because my mom hated the gerbil. So I just continued vacuuming. And I knew mom would be home soon because I was vacuuming. The grocery store was shaking. And she would know someone was at home vacuuming. Sure enough, mom comes home. She comes in, takes the groceries, puts them in the kitchen. She comes and sits down on the couch where I am. And she looks around and she begins to smile. And she looks at the empty gerbil cage and really smiles. And I say, Mom, could I have a motorcycle? I'm seven years old. They don't buy me no motorcycle. But you start big and you work your way down, right? So now I want you to know the gerbil was fine. We got him out of the bag. He was a little bit bruised, but it was okay. So he, he was fine. Next day was phase three. Phase three was mow the yard. And I'm serious about that. When I, when I first grew up, man, we didn't have a mower that had a, that had a motor on it. We had one that didn't have a motor on it. You were the motor. And so I'm, I'm mowing the yard. I'm just mowing the yard, a little bit of the flower bed and a little bit of the garden because that's kind of in a hurry. I'm mowing the yard. Mom sees me outside mowing. She fixes some lemonade, comes out on the patio. And I finish mowing. And I go over and sit down and Mom's smiling, trying to avoid the flower bed in the, in the garden. And she's smiling, and I say, Mom, could I have a measly old swin bicycle? And she thought a minute. And she thought about the clean room. and The, maid, the bed was made, and clothes were picked up. She thought about the clean living room and the empty gerbil cage. And she thought about the, the freshly mowed yard, and she said, we'll talk about it when your dad gets home, but I bet we can do something. And I said, playing it to the max, I never expected it. <laughs> I mean, you got to play it to the max, right? Now, let me ask you, why did, why did I do those things? Because they were all good things, right? And I'm part of the family. It's my mom and dad. I'm part of the family, and, and those are all good things, right? Cleaning your room's a good thing. 
vacuuming the living room is a good thing. Mowing the yard is a good thing. But why did I do those things? I did those things because of the first problem that I see within the church. I did those things because I wanted something from mom and dad. That's why I did those things. And here's the first problem that I see. Some do good things, good works, because deep down inside, they simply want something from God. And so they say, hey, God, did you see me at church today? Yeah, I was there. I know it was kind of rough getting up on a you know, time change weekend, but I made it. So I, I don't know about God, but I really want, or they teach, they do this, they do that, they do this. And it's simply because they want something from God. That's their motive. Want. James says this, and even when you ask, you don't get because your motives are all wrong. You want only what you give will give you pleasure. Motives. Now, there was another time in my life, uh, I was about two years from then, so I was about nine years old. Christmas that year, I got my first Daisy BB gun. I'd always wanted a BB gun. And so that summer, I'm out shooting things. You know, not real people, but, I'm, you know, I'm shooting things. Now, my, our neighbors that lived right next door, they got um, one of those probably a 10 or 12-foot above-ground swimming pools. They're kind of just made out of a, a thin metal with a liner in it because they kind of fold all in, you know, if there's no water in it. But you put the water in it, and they, they stand up, and so... They had this pool, but the crazy thing was they never invited me over to swim, and so I was kind of hacked off about that, so I decided I was going to teach them a lesson, and, and no, it wasn't right, and I shouldn't have done it, but I laid down on the ground, and I used the fence to stabilize the end of the barrel, and that pool was probably maybe from here to the welcome desk from me. Maybe not quite that far. Maybe to the couch. And I shot three or four BBs. Every one of them hit that pool. Every one of them went into that pool. <laughs> now that wouldn't have been too bad if it wasn't for the fact that they were in the pool swimming. Um, which wouldn't have been too bad if it wasn't for the fact that they got out and then went in and told their parents and their parents called mine. So... I mean, water was just running out, just running out, just emptying the pool, right, right, left and right. And I, I jumped up, and guess what I did? I went in, and I cleaned my room again. That's what I did. <laughs> I mean, I made the bed again, and I folded the clothes. I put all the toys in the closet. But this time, when I was nine, my parents had got me a desk, not much bigger than this, but it was kind of a square desk, and it was right in front of the window. And I decided, I'm going to clean the desk. Because I'm in trouble. And so I get the pledge and a roll of paper towels. And when you're nine years old and you're in trouble, if a little pledge gets it a little clean, then you use the whole can, right? You just clean that bad boy. And a whole roll of paper towel later, it's got about that much wax on it. Set a book on, shoot, it just falls off. Shoot, it just goes like that. But it was clean. And then I, then I sat on the edge of my bed waiting for the inevitable, inevitable and it happened. My dad came home two hours early from work. Not a good sign, okay? Now, I do want you to know, I felt bad about what I'd done. I knew I shouldn't have done it, but I was just mad because I hadn't got to go swimming. 
And I did feel, feel bad about it. But I was feeling worse about what was about to happen. And my dad comes in the door. My mom meets him. And he just says, where's Jerry? Oh, he's upstairs. I'm going to kill him. No, don't kill him. And my dad, I remember the footsteps coming up the stairs. And I remember him walking down the hallway. And then he knocked on my door. And I said, who is it? I mean, I know who it was. And my dad opens the door. And he begins to take his belt off. Not a good sign, okay? You know things aren't going well for the little guy tonight, right? I mean, that's just the way it is. And he gets it about halfway out, and he stops. And he notices the clean bed. The floors are picked up. He kind of scoots over to avoid the glare coming off the desk. And he begins to smile. And I honestly thought that maybe I was off the hook. But that wasn't the case. It just gave him more room to swing. Now, let me ask you, well, everything I did was good things, right? I mean, cleaning the room, picking up the toys, dusting the desk, all good things, all great works. But the reason I did those was because I felt guilty for what I had done. And the reason I did those was because I was afraid of the punishment that I was going to receive because of what I had done. And here's the second problem a lot of believers have, and it's simply this. Some do good things, good works, because deep down inside they feel guilty for what they've done, or they're afraid of God because of what he may do to them. You continue to feel guilty for what you've done. You continue to be afraid to approach God because you're afraid somehow he's just going to look at you and turn you into a McNugget, right? And say, I've had it with you. You're done. That's the last time. Now, let me be really honest with you. If you continue to live in that stage of guilt, then you do not understand the forgiveness of God. Because that's the enemy wanting you to continue to feel guilty for the things you have done and what you've done in your life. And you need to understand what the Bible says when God forgives you. I mean, the Bible says... God says in, in his word, he says, and I remember their sins no more. I remember their sins no more. It doesn't mean God has a bad memory. God can remember anything he wants. He's God. That word just simply means it will no longer be held against you. It will no longer be held against you. You see, here's what I believe. I believe that when you become a Christian, when you give your life to Christ, you are then covered by the blood of Christ. And when you are covered by the blood of Christ and you go to your father and you ask for forgiveness and he looks upon you, he does not see the sin that you just committed. He sees the blood that covers your life and the only thing he can do is forgive. Because you were covered by the blood of Jesus. And it's about time we lived our lives with that assurance that when we confess our sins, he's going to be faithful and just, as John says, to forgive us our sins. John wrote these words in 1 John chapter 4. He says, if we are afraid, it is for fear of punishment. And this shows that we have not fully experienced his perfect love. His love casts out on fear. 
We don't have to be afraid. We don't have to continue to feel guilty in our life. And so we have people, we have believers all across this country today, probably all over the world today, who, who do things. They're motivated to do things for God, but it's because they want something for God. Or they, or they do it because they feel guilty and they feel afraid, and so they do things for God. So what should our motive be? What should our response be to what God has done for us? Well, there's another time in my life. I was in college. The girl I was, had been dating uh, at that time was at Great Lakes Christian College in Lansing, Michigan. I was at Ozark Christian College in Joplin, Missouri, so it was kind of long distance. But she was from Toledo, Ohio. Her dad was an amazing man, and he had had a heart attack and was in the hospital, and I knew that. Well, it was one night, first part of the week, and um, in our dorms, of course, you got to remember when this was, you know, before most of you, uh, but it was, our dorms just had one phone, it was in the hallway, you know, for each floor, and the phone rang, and somebody hollered, hey, Jerry, it's for you. So I answered the phone, and it was her. It was Janice. And she just simply said, hey, my dad died just a while ago. And so I made arrangements and got to leave the next morning. And so next morning I left, and I began to drive from Joplin, Missouri to Toledo, Ohio. And, and that evening I stopped, and I spent the night at my mom and dad's uh, in Brazil, Indiana. While I was there, I got to visit my grandmother, who was also in the hospital because of heart issues. She had congestive heart failure. And I got to spend some time with her and see her. The next morning, got up and drove to Toledo. And while I was there, I went to the funeral and just did a lot of things for them, just helped out wherever I could. And then, then the next day, we were all kind of sitting around, just they were talking about their dad and telling stories about their dad. And their phone rang, and they said, hey, Jerry, it's for you. And so I went, and my dad just simply says, hey, um, your grandmother died this morning in her sleep. We need you to come home. And so I did. I got my stuff together and got in the car and drove back down to Brazil, Indiana. And it's about five, six hours away. And when I got there, let me tell you what I did. I did a lot of good things. A lot of good works, so to speak. You see, I helped around the house, and um, I helped my mom cook food and prepare stuff for the funeral dinner. Uh, I went and mowed my grandfather's yard because he just wasn't able to do it. And then I was able to do most of my grandmother's funeral. First funeral I ever did was my grandmother's. Now, let me tell you, not one time while I was doing those good things, because they're all good things, right? Helping with the food, mowing the yard, doing the funeral, doing anything I could to, to help around the house. All good things. But you know, there was not one time while I was doing those things did I ever want anything from my mom or my grandfather. Not once. Not once did I do those things because I felt guilty or afraid that if I didn't do it, somehow I'd be punished. And so I needed to do those things. No, not once did I feel those things. You know why I did those things? 
I did those things because in doing those things, I demonstrated just how much love I had in my heart for my grandmother. That is why I did those things. See, here's the solution. The solution to the motive problem is simply this. We are to do good things. We are to do good works out of, deep, out of a deep and sincere love for God, period. That's why we do them. That's why you come to church. You come because you love the Father and you want to be with Him. That's why you teach, you serve, you sing, you play. You do whatever you do in church. You do it not because you want something from God or you feel guilty or you're afraid. You do it because you love the Father. And the love that you have for the Father is demonstrated out of your life by the things you do. Period. John writes, this is how we come to understand and experience love. Christ sacrificed his life for us. This is why we ought to live sacrificially for our fellow brothers or believers and not just be out for ourselves. If you see some brother or sister in need and have the means to do something about it but turn a cold shoulder and do nothing, what happens to God's love? It disappears. And you made it disappear. Wow. My dear children, let's not just talk about love. Let's practice real love. Let's reflect. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to ask yourself this morning, why do I do what I do? And I need you to be honest. I just need you to be honest with yourself and with your father. Why do you do what you do? What motivates you? Am I trying to get something from him? Am I afraid that if I don't, something bad will happen? What motivates you? And if you're not sure how to answer those, then here's what I want you to do for just a moment. I want you to pray this prayer that's found in Psalm 26, verse 2. Look what it says. Put me on trial, Lord, and cross-examine me. Test my motives and my heart. Maybe that's what you need to do right now as we reflect. We're just going to spend a moment just reflecting. And as we do, I want you to pray that prayer. God, put me on trial right now, God. Put me on trial. And I want you to test me, God. I want you to test me. I want you to test my motives and my heart. Because I want them to be pure motives. I want to do what I do because I love you. No other reason, just because I love you. And so I just want you to spend a moment reflecting if the worship team will make their way up at this point. And the rest, if you'll just spend a moment in reflection.